Yeah, Nolan? Hey everyone, it's Nubs. Hey, uh, you know, we just wanted to kind of preface this episode with, you know, it, it would feel a little tone deaf to not acknowledge kind of the choice here and what it's all about. And as our entire country recognizes the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we certainly chose this album as a way to reflect on the times and to spend some time thinking about the era that it came out. And just like all albums that we choose, you know, part of the reason that we do this podcast is to give context and, and a lot of thought into what these albums represent. And Bruce Springsteen's The Rising certainly represents uh, a lot of things for us. More than anything, we just want to let you know that uh, throughout this episode, as we talk about a record, in our hearts and in our minds are the countless people who were impacted by those terrible attacks in this terrible time for our country. And we certainly want to dedicate this episode to all of those people and thank them so much for their endless service to our country. Thanks, everyone. Let's get in the episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Voice is coming back a little bit here, too. It's coming back. It's coming back. <laughs> for for better or for worse, you know, we can hear you again. Mrs. Nubs is going to be like, can you go back to like not talking? Because I liked it better when your, you know, voice was gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, it's good to hear you again, buddy, with a little girth to your voice, you know, a little girth. A little girth. Yeah, not too much, though. Not to be confused with a lot of girth. No, never a problem. 20 years, T. Yeah. It's a long time. It's also a short time. That's kind of one of the themes of this episode here and also just kind of theme of what we've all kind of recognized in the last few weeks. I mean, it's amazing how long 20 years feels, especially figuratively. And it's amazing how short 20 years is literally. And obviously, you know, Bruce Springsteen's The Rising, which is our featured album here, uh, it represents a lot about the time period it came out. But one of the things that I do want to start with and that we we have to recognize is this was an interesting time for you and I. 2002, you and I were both kind of at the pinnacle of our college experiences. Right. Well, toward the end of them, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's a, there's a historical context in some that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. We're going to be very focused on that during the episode. 2002 was my senior year at Ohio state. It was your sort of senior year. <laughs> I did the, uh, the, 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 uh, victory lap, you know, I did an extra semester, which, you know, I do have two degrees, you know, I did double major yeah, solely for the purpose of to being on the four and a half year plan. Four is too early. It's too soon. You know, too soon. You triple majored. Your third one was in uh, tolerance increase studies. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a little bit of that here and there, here and there. Dabbled. Yeah. Yeah. I remember sort of being like a little bit jealous of, of you that you were still going, but then I was already working and I was doing this music review gig too. So it was yeah. interesting because on one hand I was having the the job of my dreams. And when, when the rising came out, you know, I did a review of it and everything. It was one of the earlier albums I reviewed. Yeah. But also feeling a little bit like, yeah, T's having a lot of fun right now too. Though. Well, and I was yeah. sort of feeling like, well, here I am like still just being a moron. I was bartending, I believe. And 
Which is a great way to make a living, of course. But uh, you were like actually like getting up in the morning and going to work. And I was like, I don't know. You have this weird thing where you're like torn toward the end of college where you're like still enjoying. I mean, you know, Lawrence, Kansas. I mean, come on. You're going to enjoy that always and forever. But you're also kind of getting starting to get ready to like bring in your own paycheck and make your own money. And for me, you know, moving to New York City and. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a time of, uh, you're too young and dumb to be scared of what you should be scared of, which is like going into the real world, but going into the real world is also kind of awesome, you know, uh, getting your first like real paycheck with like benefits and all these things, you know, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, once you, uh, once you actually take the plunge. So yeah, you did that a little bit sooner than I did. Yeah, it's it's it. You always want what you what you can't have, right? Yeah, the so grass is always greener, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's always greener for sure. Absolutely. Well, we have a lot to talk about uh, with the rising and uh, everything that surrounds it, but uh, let's keep things present day at least for a little bit before we take a step into the past and let's find out what you've been listening to as we uh, as we go round and round. Let's do it. See, three albums that have been on your uh, turntable, CD player, um, cassette player, <laughs> eight track player, phone, whatever yeah. other medium you might use. Reel mm-hmm. to reel. Mostly, mostly phone, I have to admit. But, <laughs> you know, I still it's funny. I still do buy CDs because I like to import them into my digital collection, you know, with the best uh, quality possible and as far as bit rate and those things. So. So I, I still purchase CDs. The problem is I don't really have anywhere to play them anymore. I mean, I don't have one in my car. I don't have one in, on my laptop. Like, so I sometimes import them and then just get rid. I mean, sometimes some I'll keep because I want a collection of sorts, but sometimes I just throw them away, honestly, because you're not going to really resell them. And, you know, you can have unlimited access to the album through digital. So. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but but I do still buy physical. In fact, two of the round and rounds I'm about to talk about, I do have the physical disc for them. And the first is one of my favorite bands, Angels and Airwaves, and their new record, Life Forms, came out. And I continue to really love what Elon Rubin has done and his brother, who, you know, is basically in charge of production and I think a lot of the composition piece too. I really love what they've done to this group. I, you know, I, I'm super pumped for this album and it's good, but it's not, it didn't blow me away the way that the Dreamwalker did. You know, it's not quite as sturdy and strong top to bottom. So still great. I still love, again, Elon is an, he's an awesome drummer. Don't you think, Nub? I mean, he's, you know, top notch as far as modern guys. He's great. No doubt about it. Yeah. Perfect yeah. fit for the band too. Yeah perfect fit for the band and and tom has really given him a lot of creative input and freedom right this is i think this used to be the uh you know tom's uh, sort of dictatorship project um but you know he's really allowed those brothers in particular to come in and really have a heavy hand on the direction of it and life forms is great i i think i was just i mean the dreamwalker album of the year 2014 and just absolutely like blew the doors off for me. So, you know, comparing it tough, tough comp 
on, on life forms, but uh, you know, it's, it's still a good listen. The second is one that uh, I haven't listened to yet. And that's by the band Candlebox, And this is the album. It's called wolves and it's brand new. And you know, I've kept up with these guys' catalog and interested in uh, kind of what they put out here recently. So maybe I'll update on that in a future round and round, but uh, the third is just an outstanding record. Uh, Nubs. Uh, I know it's a, uh, an artist that you know we're both really fond of and i'm not sure if you've heard this yet but it's andrew wk's album god is partying it is so good man like and he sings you know pretty much the whole album so he's really starting to get away from vocal effects and these type of things and he's really just you know raw acoustic vocal and he obviously has a wonderful voice i think we've all known that those that it actually you know, have followed him for years, even though he doesn't always display it, but that's part of the shtick. That's part of the art piece. But on this one, it almost, I mean, a lot of this sounds, you know, I was thinking shades of like Uriah Heap stuff and Dev, even Devin Townsend type stuff. It's a very big, grand, you know, sort of metal sound, very layered, of course, as Andrew WK's uh, work typically is. But the vocals are great. And man, I think you're going to love this record, Nub. And I've, I've really, I've only listened to it twice, but man, I'm really into it. I heard the lead single. It's the whole album taking on more of a stadium metal sort of approach because that's what I got out of the single. Is there, is there a piano and the, the melodies and things like that in it? Yeah, definitely. You still get the layering and you still get some, some keys and some, you know, those type of elements, which obviously have always been pretty big with, with his sound. But yeah, we'll see what you think. We'll see what you think. I, I think it's just outstanding. So that's what's uh, round and round for me, Nub. What's round and round for you, buddy? See, for me, first and foremost, is uh, the Metallica Black album. But let's just say what it is, Metallica. Mm, yeah. They just reissued. I've heard of this album before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Metallica's in the midst. In fact, they might be near the end because I don't know if they'll get into the load reload thing. But the Black album reissue package is is the... I guess the fifth of five that they've put out and they've done these super deluxe box sets. Well, this one was 280 bucks. It it came out, it immediately sold out. I was having a really hard time finding it and got it. It's 60 discs of content. It's got everything from the era, a bunch of live stuff, tons of useless, but cool memorabilia. And uh, since I've been on quarantine, as we discussed before, it's given me a chance to just dive into this thing. And yeah, how are you feeling, buddy? Let's do a quick 10 second yeah. health update, you know? Feeling okay. Feeling all right. Just battling through it, buddy. Battling through it. <laughs> uh, and so it's been a nice quarantine activity to kind of dive through this thing. And I mean, it, it is massive and bloated, but it also reminds you of how important that album was to Metallica and how, and how exceptional it was, especially from a production standpoint. I mean, it, it almost didn't need remastering, right? It just sounded so good, even originally. So been loving that. I don't know if you've gotten any formats of the, of the reissue, but it's worth getting for sure. Secondly, would be another kind of box set, but this is uh, the Deer Hunter with uh, the Color Spectrum. This is the complete collection of the Color Spectrum EPs. It's 10 10-inch vinyls packaged together. It's very out of print and very rare, but the Deer Hunter, one of the great new, new-ish, I should say, bands of the prog rock genre, just a a almost, you know, unethically overlooked band. You know, everyone who's into (laughs) complex music should look into the deer hunter. And it's, it's almost agonizing how overlooked uh, the the group has been. And then lastly is the album, the pursuit of accidents by level 42. You know, obviously world machine gets a lot of the 
commercial yeah. love, but I think the pursuit of accidents is probably the best level 42 album and uh, scored a good vinyl copy of it lately and been really enjoying that. Mark King, man, that dude can just thrash. Right? No, I'm sure there's some really subpar bass work on that record. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah he's, he's, he's amazing. We've talked about it a couple of times. He, he should be up there in terms of, you know, sort of top tier, all time great, you know, rock bass players. He should be up there. I don't know why he's not more. Maybe he is more often than I realize, like in Europe and areas where they know what they're talking about sometimes a little bit more. But, you know, I think he is within like the bass player community, but that's, you know, bass players are bass players are just kind of in their own world. Anyway, he's a right? bassist's bassist. Like you said, Norm yes. MacDonald was a comedian's comedian. Maybe, maybe Mark King is the bassist's bassist, you know. Can you imagine those discussions? You know, the, the, the bassists talking about the bass. That's, uh, that's gotta be a, that's gotta be a beauty, huh? They probably just all sit around and slap the bass while they talk about slapping the yeah. bass. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. hey guys. Yeah. And there's just like Jaco Pistorius playing in the background, you know, and they're all just, yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. See, well, um, the nerdy deets will certainly attempt to tell the story of this album, but you, you really cannot talk about Bruce Springsteen's The Rising without, of course, recognizing it, the themes within it. A lot of people assume that it's a, a concept album about the September 11th, 2001 attacks on our country. It's really not. In fact, some of the songs on The Rising were written you know, long before 9-11 happened. But it's, it's first of all, it's the artist and his role in, in the whole idea of 9-11 because Bruce Springsteen is, is so important to the East coast of our country. You know, uh, he's born and raised in New Jersey, but he's, he's in a lot of ways, a New York guy. And so his voice became incredibly important just during this time, the, the themes of the record itself, the lyrical themes and the music and, and all those sort of things, they're very strongly connected. Most of the songs were written after nine 11 with the inspiration of those events. And, and it runs the gamut, as we'll cover, of emotions and all of the things that our country was going through during this time. This album means a lot. But right now, as we recognize the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we, we certainly want to have that lens as we look at it and as we have the discussions with each other. And we'll get to that in our Wonder Stories, because we want to do something a little bit special with our Wonder Stories today, which is not really tell our Bruce Springsteen story, but more so um, our 9-11 uh, story, you know, where we were and how we heard and, and some of the immediate aftermath of going through that event, uh, just the two of us as brothers. So, well, and I, we, you and I were, uh, uh, together recently for a, uh, family, little family soiree, um, down in North Carolina over the Labor Day weekend, actually. And your daughter, your almost 10 year old double digits, man, how wild is that? Eh? Asked what 9-11 was. And it was the first time I've heard any of our, we have four, we have four kids collectively, right? And it was the first time that any of them asked the question. And uh, it was, it was an eye opener. It was like, wow, you know, we, we all said at that time that this is going to be the thing that our kids ask us about. And you kind of giggle just at the idea of having kids and all that. And then here we are, she asked the question. I, it was very, uh, very cool and very, uh, eye-opening when uh, I heard your, your eldest gal, you know, inquire about it. There's, it's interesting because of all of the kind of political divisions and just the overall tone of 
of our country right now. <laughs> I actually heard a debate about, you know, whether we have forgotten about 9-11. And it was just awful to even hear that be a question because uh, we should never forget the, the significance of, of those events. Looking at this album, uh, a huge part of it is just taking us back to that time, but also hopefully having a tremendous amount of respect for those who were impacted and continue to be impacted. I mean, this is something that continues on. You hear stories now of people who are even just still experiencing the physical effects of what they might've had to do uh, during those days to help save people's lives or, or clean up, uh, you know, destruction or all those sort of things. So let's, uh, let's do some nerdy deets, you know, let's learn more about uh, the ins and outs of the rising before we uh, talk a little bit more about each other's stories. Let's do nerdy deets done dirt cheap. So The Rising by Bruce Springsteen, even though it doesn't have the E Street Band name on it, it also includes the E Street Band, was released on July 30th, 2002, of course, on Columbia Records, the boss's longtime home. This is a guy who's found a lot of consistency just in terms of his career and his business and all those sort of things. I mean, he really was on Columbia for, I think, all of his career. So it's, I think one of the things that stands out about the album, of course, aside from being released within the same year of the 9-11 attacks was just kind of what was going on in music at the time. It was released primarily on CD. It's 72 minutes and 52 seconds long with 15 tracks. It's very long. Bruce clearly had a lot to say uh, with this record, but it is very significant that he gathered the E Street Band again to play. And we'll go through that personnel. But without question, aside from the songwriter and leader himself, the MVP of the album is the producer, Brendan O'Brien. Just a perfect, perfect fit for what this album was out to do. Brendan O'Brien brought out a, a kind of size to the production, a thickness, a grandness to this album that, that really he had not found in a long time. And as much as I love Springsteen's 90s output, I love Tunnel of Love and the Lucky Town and Human Touch albums, there was a production aspect to it. The albums were very thin and the rising is, is huge, you know, and Brendan O'Brien deserves so much, if not all of the credit for just kind of how this album was made and how the, the, the sonic textures of it came to be. It fits in with the themes very, very well. Of course, the personnel is the street band. So Springsteen taking a lot of guitars and vocals Roy Bitten, the keyboardist, Clarence Clemens, of course, on saxophone and background vo vocals, Danny Federici on a variety of keys, Nils Lofgren, he's part of the E Street Band, would have like 10 guitarists in the E Street Band, Patty Scalfa, Springsteen's wife on vocals and guitars, Gary Talon on bass, Stephen Van Zant, you know, he was in The Sopranos, you know, you're aware of that? He was in The Sopranos. Silvio, of course. <laughs> <laughs> He's, unfortunately, he became much more known for being in The Sopranos than being in the E Street Band. But, uh, <laughs> and he made the same faces playing Silvio as he did while he was playing guitar. Same exact face. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like he had one move, but it worked perfectly for being a lead guitarist and playing a, an Italian mobster. So. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Great call. Great call. And, and of course, well-known as the frequent sharer of the microphone with Bruce Springsteen, Stephen Van Zandt, and on drums. And in my opinion, like far and away, the, the pinnacle of his performances as a drummer, maybe aside from sharing the stage with 
Conan O'Brien for many, many years, of course, is Max Weinberg, who I think puts in a tremendous performance on this album and the ensuing tour, which I was lucky enough to see. Sure does. No doubt about it. So uh, The Rising was, was very well acclaimed. Uh, obviously, not a concept album about 9-11, but became the, the album that was the 9-11 album and, and still continues on that to this day. 9-11 had a huge impact on the music industry. Tours were delayed, albums were delayed. And when this came out, it, it seemed the timing of it was just sort of perfect with what people sort of needed to hear at this time. And they needed to hear Springsteen sing songs about all of the different, you know, themes and feelings and thoughts and emotions uh, as the country continued to recover from this very traumatic experience. It did win a Grammy Award for Best Rock Album in 2003. It was very well acclaimed and sold extremely well all over the world. Uh, the, the most recent, you know, numbers in terms of being platinum would be that the rising went two times platinum in the U S that's about 2.1 million copies. So did very, very well along with all of the kind of societal impact of the album T one of the things you got to realize too, this album was huge for Springsteen's career. It was huge. It really put him back on the map, not just commercially, but with a ton of credibility musically. I mean, this, you know, a lot of people didn't like the 90s input. They wanted the return of the E Street Band. The tour that came after this album was long and massive and incredibly successful. And so along with all of the elements that we'll talk about on why The Rising is important, this album was incredibly vital for the long-term aspect of Springsteen's career. John Lando must have been very happy with the way this whole thing kind of went down for sure. Yeah, that's good context. And, and particularly with, you know, he had, he did the human touch lucky town thing without the E street band. And was there an album in between that and this? I'm sure there was one or two, but you know, it, it just felt it was very smart on his part or on his people's part, whoever comes up with these things to kind of give people some familiarity, some comfort. And I think him getting back with the band you know, sort of getting back to basics, which I think this record really did in a lot of ways. Um, but everybody, it it really feels like when you talk about sort of the sum of the parts, you know, with these things that you have to at times, especially with a solo artist, where sometimes the contributors get overlooked. It seems like everybody was like really focused on putting in their best here. You know, you talked about it with Max Weinberg and, you know, it seems like everybody in the E Street Band kind of realized the magnitude of this, the importance of this. It's, it's a very thoughtful performance where you really feel like it was one of those deals where even if it took 500 takes, they were going to do it until they got perfection out of everybody. And I think that whether you like the record or not, obviously we'll eventually get to that stuff. You have to respect and account for the fact that I think everybody was bringing their A plus game for this. Very well said. No doubt about it. See, for Wonder Stories, uh, like we said, I, I, I'd really like to document our kind of 9-11 experience. You know, not everybody has the method or means to document this, but we all have a story that lived through that day. And I think that as you mentioned earlier, for the sake of, of our kids and their kids and, and really with the idea of let's make sure we never forget this. Let's make sure we never have to have this debate on whether we've, we've forgotten about this horrific, but you know, really, really important event historically. 
documenting our wonder stories uh, gives us that opportunity. So if you're okay with that, I'd like to hear yours. Absolutely. All right, let's do the wonder stories. Well, we kick off the show talking about that we were both college kids at the time, which was an interesting time to go through something like this. So here you are, I think, at the University of Kansas and and take it away and tell us what you went through that day. Yeah. So obviously this was September and, you know, we had just kind of started, you know, getting back into um, school, getting back into class. And this was my senior year of college and I was living off campus in a like a duplex type place with a couple of buddies. And it was always very hot in Kansas in July, August, September, really went until pretty much early October. And I remember it was a beautiful, very, very hot morning. And I used to drive um, to the you know fraternity house that I was a part of and had lived at prior and uh, use the parking lot and then walk onto campus. So I, I got, um, and you know, remember, I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, I didn't even have like a flip phone. I had nothing. And the way you acquired news and those things, you were starting to get it some from the internet when you were on a computer, but you were only on a computer when you were sitting and you were focused and you were, you know, sort of either doing schoolwork or catching up on those type of things. And certainly the news, um, piece was not as robust online as it is now. You didn't have like streaming videos and you didn't have like all these type of things. It was Basically, you know, you would read news stories, but there were still newspapers and, you know, television was really kind of still the way to capture these things. So, and, you know, when you're in college, I mean, uh, you don't you don't follow the news much or maybe that was just me. I mean, I didn't care. It was like, you know, you're so focused on yourself and on your pals and what you're going to do that night. And I was working bartending and and playing music, you know, because we did the acoustic thing. Um, so, you know, you, you're busy in your own little like little college world and and you're you're pretty you know sort of fixated on your own stuff so you don't really spend a lot of time i mean i knew nothing about politics or about you know world events or i mean admittedly i just wasn't you know that into it uh and frankly i didn't even get that into that stuff until like the last like 10 years to be honest with you so um so particularly at this time so i would often when i was in the car there was this uh, local DJ named Johnny Dare, and he was like this sort of edgy, you know, it was like a mad cow, um, you know, all sort of the, under the Howard Stern kind of uh, approach. Amazing and, that his parents would name him Johnny Dare. That's yeah, I know. So right. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, I had a, a morning class, um, which, you know, seemed early at the time. And so this was, you know, right around, um, I think the class, the class may have been at nine o'clock central, which would have been 10 o'clock Eastern. And, um, and I remember getting in the car and turning on, uh, the station that uh, Johnny Dare was usually on and you expect to hear them laughing or them screwing around, uh, you know, doing some bit or whatever. And, um, I realized after 10 seconds that, you know, what I was actually listening to was some kind of national news feed. You know, this was not the local show. This was something being broadcasted nationally and something uh, that sounded chaotic. It was so chaotic that between the time that I was driving to campus, which was like a five minute drive, and the time that I parked my car, I really couldn't still fully understand what was going on. 
I knew that something had happened in New York City. And, you know, a couple of years prior was when the World Trade Center, you know, there was a t- an attempted bombing on the World Trade Center. And so, you know, the idea of the World Trade Center or something in New York City being attacked certainly, you know, wasn't um, preposterous. Now, you know, you didn't realize the magnitude over the radio within five minutes. And this was in the midst of it all happening. So, you know, I kind of just thought, well, something sounds like something bad happened in New York City. And, you know, maybe we'll hear more later in the day or something. Right. So this class that I was going to was on the First Amendment, I remember. And it was taught by this very quiet, soft-spoken and very kind um, professor who was one of these guys. He wasn't an academia guy. He had actually been out in the field as a reporter and as, you know, and this um, class was all about First Amendment and got into journals and ethics and these things. It was a great class. I got out of my car and, you know, got, got to class and, you know, people were kind of chirping a little bit about something, but it wasn't really like, I mean, we're all like 20 years old. We're not, you know, we're not grown adults that can sit there and pick apart, you know, what it, whatever had happened or what people knew. And half the people did, had no idea. So it was just a mixed kind of deal. And again, there's no phones. Like people aren't like, oh, look at what, you know, look at my mobile device and what having, you know, so everyone's kind of just going in blind here. Professor comes out and this is an hour and 20 minute class, if I remember correctly. And he teaches for about 30 minutes. And just, you know, like it's a normal class, normal class, you know, normal deal. Somebody in the class, bless their heart. I remember this girl in the middle of the room raised her hand and said, you know, are you going to acknowledge at all what happened this morning? Are we going to talk about it? Or do you, you know, almost like she was like agitated and the, the guy had no clue. He was like, I've been in my office all morning. What happened? He had no, I mean, he had no idea. And so I remember a couple of the students sort of said, oh, there's an attack in New York, blah, blah, blah. And back then they had um, projectors at the front of the class. You know, you'd bring down a screen. It was almost like an overhead. And they were starting to get to the point where you could connect these overheads with uh, the internet. So you could bring up, you know, still web pages on the screen. I remember him lowering, lowering the screen and pulling up a, um, a page online. And it was that iconic picture of the just large ball of explosion in the, you know, first tower. And I, I just will never forget that because the gasp in the room, you know, it looked fake. It looked like something you'd see out of it. There was a movie called Independence Day around that time that was really popular. And it looked like that. It was like, that can't be real. And so we spent a couple minutes. Everyone was kind of freaked out. And finally, the professor just said, you know what, just go, just everybody go home, everybody watch TV, everybody, you know, just chill and try to kind of catch up on what's happening here because there's no reason for us to have a class. This is, you know, this is obviously a big deal. And so this was in the journalism school and down the hallway, there was a newsroom, you know, and they basically had a TV tucked up in the corner. This was very like old school, you know, news. And, and it was there to kind of teach the students, how a newsroom operates and those type of things. So I walked down the hall and looked up at the TV and I swear I must've got there like 30 seconds before the second tower was hit. And so I saw that live and on the TV and it it was just unbelievable. And I, after that, I just turned around and left. It's like, I'm going home. I went home, 
both my roommates were home from there, you know, either I can't remember if they had class that got canceled or whatnot. And my girlfriend came over and we just like posted up just like the rest of the world. Now here's the flip side. I had this afternoon class. Okay. So, so they didn't cancel class at KU. They basically said, you know, your professor will work with you on, you know, and, and if, if there's an alert that your class has been canceled, you'll get a message. And so, you know, next class got canceled next class. So every class that I had that day got canceled except for one. Yeah, it was kind of funny because my girlfriend at the time, there was this class called prehistoric life. And, you know, we were like, oh, we're going to learn about the dinosaurs. This is going to be sweet, you know, and, and it ended up being the most boring. It was like talking about fossils, not like we thought we were going to talk about like the brontosaurus, the T-Rex, you know? yeah, the T-Rex <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, the one that flies, the pterodactyl, you know, yeah. And it ended up not being that at all. It actually ended up being this, this really boring, terrible class where you like analyzed fossils and the professor of the class could not have been more of an asshole just from the get go. But he just, he was one of these academia, you know, you could tell he never, you know, was in the real world and he was just a jerk. He just treated students like crap and he treated seemingly the, the entire world like crap. The afternoon kept going along and I kept not getting a cancellation notice. And we were like, do we have to go? Cause we had a quiz scheduled for that day, you know? And it was like, Oh my God, I think we're having class. Like this is insane. But you know, so we got to class and, uh, it was on, it was, I swear it was the only class being ran that day. And this guy, um, kind of quiets everybody down and says, okay, so, you know, we have a quiz today and, uh, and that's why I didn't cancel class because Lord knows we couldn't reschedule a freaking prehistoric life quiz. Right. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, uh, New York City got bombed today, not Lawrence, Kansas. So we're moving on with class. Wow. And I wish, you know, it's one of my regrets in life. I wish I would have had the courage to stand up and tell him to go, you know, do something with himself and leave. And I, I always wish I could have gone back and had the courage to do that. And I'm sure everyone else in that class wishes they could as well. It was startling. It was um, even at that moment on that day when you still, you know, sort of didn't really understand everything that was happening, that there was this person who could just be so callous and um, not just, you know, go forward like it was a normal day, but actually say something of that magnitude. And I just absolutely hated this guy for the rest of time but for the rest of this class and you know i wish i would have done more to uh, let him know how awful that was but the amount of of disrespect in that statement is staggering yeah I he mean, said bombed i mean he just it was just right. awful just awful and he, he had no idea who was in the room i mean you've you've got a yeah. big national university you know you could have had students in there from all over the country and certainly from the east coast and I, I mean, that's just that that shows you just the arrogance sometimes in that community, you know, yeah. in terms of academia, because that and I've heard other stories about that where, where professors still hold class. And I mean, that's that's just. Yeah, it was it was awful. So after that, other than that, it was a, a day or two of watching a lot of TV, trying to gather a lot of information and, and leaning on 
you know, George W. Bush did not have a perfect presidency, but boy, was he great during that time. And Rudy Giuliani was amazing during that time. Yeah, and they, they were both so like, talk about somebody coming along and just making you feel like everything might be okay. Both yeah. of those guys. I mean, such leadership during that time. They were both very calming, very um, comforting and, and very confident and but sort tough of like, too. Remember yeah. when President Bush stood on top of the rubble and said, we're going to fight, you know, I mean, yeah. it was like with the blowhorn and he, you know, <laughs> He said, yeah. I hear you. I mean, he, he just, yeah. he, he was, um, he was incredible during those, those few days. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a wild situation, you know, and one that you were constantly trying to just sort of get a handle on. Um, my wife, uh, Miss, Mrs. Tove was there in New York city. And so it's a very, um, it hits home very much with our family and with her. It's, it's still to this day is a difficult day for her. Her mood is, you know, materially affected, um, on that day because, you know, being there, you know, we all have these accounts of what happened, but you know, she was in Manhattan and had to leave and had to figure out where to stay that night and had to you know, figure out how to sort of, you know, rebuild going to work in the coming days and weeks and these type of things. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a different deal when you um, actually saw the city and felt the city that day and, you know, talking to her about it's always uh, fascinating and interesting. And even to this day, it's a day that really affects her. One of the things that has become a, a, a major offset to it is that our son Clay was born the day after on nine twelve in two thousand twelve. So it used to be a fairly melancholy time period and and weekend and whatever it may be. And now it's become a day that is sad and a day of recollection. But the next day we have our little guy's birthday to look forward to, you know, which is kind of cool. And I think you know, for especially for her, you know, to have sort of a, a day that's pretty joyous after a day that's always been pretty tough for her is, is, has been kind of nice. The last thing I'll mention is, um, and I, I don't know if I've ever really told anybody this, but I, ever since the day that happened, I made, you know, two commitments to myself. The first is that, um, I would always, no matter what, I would put my hand on my heart during the national anthem. And the second is that I, since the day it happened, when the national anthem wraps up, I tap my heart three times, 911, to remind myself of it. And I've always done that. I do it very quietly. I'm not sure if anyone's ever actually noticed. But um, a lot of you just noticed, but I did it right before you told the story because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you, it. Yeah. Did you? Have we ever talked about it? Or did you just you mentioned it, it once within months? Of the event, but ever since, yeah. and you and I, because we go to sporting events and things do tend to stand through national anthem performances. And I've, every time I look, cause I think it's really inspiring. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's just one of those dumb things that I've committed that I would always do. And I've done it every single time since for the last 20 years. And, you know, I think it's an important thing to always uh, remind yourself of and be mindful of, and especially when it hits close to home for us, like it does in a lot of ways. So. That's, uh, that's my wonder story, buddy. And, and of course, you know, I'll give 10 seconds on Bruce Springsteen because it was one of the first concerts we went to very early on in our concert days. And I was fairly bored, but we can talk about that later. What's your wonder story now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
I appreciate you sharing that T that that's a, um, I, I knew most of that. I didn't know all of it. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> you and I had this weird thing with our college experiences in the sense that Ohio state in the sense that the Ohio state university was on quarters. <laughs> we were one of the only colleges in the country that was on this sort of wonky quarter schedule, whereas you were on semesters or trimesters, which, which meant that we would start very late in the school year. We were always the last to go. And, the, and then the last to, to be done for the year for the summer. And so Ohio State during this time, and they've changed it since, it would not start classes until usually mid to late September, usually somewhere in the late teens and the early 20s, you'd, you'd sit in your first class. And so you guys would all leave and I would just be kind of stuck at home, left to find a few weeks of fun while I was kind of the last one who went out of state to leave. But that sure worked in our favor at the end of the school year. Cause I would get done about a month before and I'd just come post up in Columbus for a bit. Wouldn't I? Yeah, for sure. Which, <laughs> which was awesome. It was so great. It was so perfect, you know? And so usually those weeks would be, you know, reserved for those things that I would put off all summer, but needed to do when you go to school out of state, you need to do things like go to the dentist, you know, cause you're not really able to do that during the school year or go to the doctor or take care of other like things that you need to schedule in advance. That morning I had a dentist appointment and our dentist uh, was until very recently, our uncle. Was it at two 30? Your dentist appointment? Tooth hurdy. Was it two 30 or two 30? Oh, it was in the morning, not two 30. Okay. Nice. And uh, our dentist until quite recently was, was our uncle, not our blood uncle, but like, you know, the dad's best friend sort of uncle deal. So I had woken up that morning, like most college kids, I wanted to get every ounce of sleep I could. And my, my routine, if I had a morning thing, was I would turn on the TV in my bedroom, turn the volume up super, super, super loud, so then I could hear the TV while I was in the shower, right? And so here we go again with two twins in a shower. <laughs> right. But the, you, know, you couldn't, there was no phone with the news on it that you could take into the bathroom with you or anything like that. So you jack up the volume of the TV, get in the shower and then hear the TV as we go. And, and at this time I was a little more into the news and things like that than you were. So I'd turn on a, a morning news show. You're definitely more mature than me in these ways. Well, yes. in a couple ways. In a couple <laughs> I would always ask you, I was like, no, what is this thing going on? And you'd be like, it's this. And I'd be like, all right, fine. Yeah. You're like, whatever, man. <laughs> There's a lot of ways you were ahead of me, buddy, though. Trust me. Hindsight mm, showed that. Yeah, useless ways, mostly. Yeah. Well, no, I would say many useful ways. But anyway, um, so I, I turned the TV on and the first thing I saw was like this hole in this building. And then it dawned on me that, you know, that was the World Trade Center. And what hit me the most personally and what would continue to hit me the most personally during the day was about four months before that in the spring, I had accompanied my dad on a business trip, which I'd occasionally do. He would go to New York a lot and had like a day to kill. And so went with uh, his assistant and we went to the top of the World Trade Center. We went to the observation deck. And so I, I, I immediately went to that thought because this was just a few months before. And I was standing at the top of those buildings looking at just the vastness of New York City thinking, I am literally on top of the world. It wasn't my first time at the top of those buildings, but it was you know, the last time. And it was luckily, I took a good mental picture of it. I remember first thinking, God, I was just there. Like I was just- Yeah, it was not long- you know, I immediately thought, wow, there's a hole in there and I'm sure people are trying to get out and, but didn't, didn't have any more information. So 
turned up the TV, got in the shower, was listening to this whole thing. And I'm hearing airplane and I'm hearing, you know, explosion and like all these heavy ideas. And I'm just trying to make sense of it. So I remember vividly like really rushing because I'm like, God, I got to get back out in front of this TV. And in the time period of where I like was drying off and got back out in front of the TV, I heard something about second plane and another explosion. And I'm like, but what's, here's what's weird T. I did not. It took me a long time to realize that this was a coordinated effort. This is how kind of naive you are at 21. Cause I was, just, I was still like, Oh, that's weird. Like what a, what a crazy accident, you know, a couple planes of, I mean, it just didn't compute that you think like this is this coordinated terrorist attack. You know, then I started fig- like piecing it all together. It was so, so shocking. The images were so shocking, as you mentioned. And then I'm kind of thinking like, do I still go to the dentist? Like, what do I do? Like most Americans, you're just trying to figure out what to do. Do you go to class? Do you go to the dentist? Do you, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so I remember thinking even at the time, I'm like, well, I better go because, you know, I, I'm leaving for school next week and I don't know if I'm in the opportunity. So, so I, I got in my car and drove to the dentist and I was listening to, the, by this time, obviously the, all, every radio station in, in the world had tuned into, you know, close up coverage of the event. So did you, were you tuned into Howard Stern? I, we were obviously big Howard guys at this, at this stage. I didn't cause I was in Kansas city and we didn't get him there, but I know you got him in Detroit and he, I'm sure many are aware I mean, now Howard Stern's unlistenable, but back then and and growing up, we were huge fans and um, it really is a great, if you're looking for a timepiece to go sort of recollect, because he stayed on the air, you know, this was back before now when he's figuring out ways to make a lot of money without being on the air. He stayed on that entire day. And actually it's a, it's a brilliant broadcast by, by that whole team. But were you tuned into that at all or on that day or? So I was, but not every market stayed with him. So he Uh, stayed on the air and it's great to hear the show. But Detroit, the Detroit market had gone to CBS National News. Did they? Okay. Okay. So I, I, I heard some of the initial, but then quickly went to the news. And so, you know, en route to the dentist and the Pentagon gets hit. It's like, what on earth? You know? So I remember getting to the dentist and it was just this feeling of like, like, am I even supposed to be here? Like, you know, and so at that time, while I was sitting in the chair, they had had a report that there was another plane that was unaccounted for. And, and then eventually that had crashed in Pennsylvania. That's when I got scared. I will tell you right now that that truly is where I honestly got scared. I was a pretty sensitive guy, still am, as we've talked about, but I really did. I got fearful at that moment. It was like, how many how many planes did they take over and, and where's the next one, you know, going to land and just raced home. I got home as quickly as I could. And then, you know, obviously parked it in front of the TV and then everything just started happening in terms of information. And you started who were to you see with? severity. Were you with our parents or, or who, who did you spend that evening with? Yeah. So I, I, I did spend it with our, with our parents and then our, you know, our younger sister who was pretty young at the time was there, but I remember um, <laughs> there was this girl that I was really into. Of course, and yeah. she was a little bit yeah. older, and her and I had been hanging out a little bit. But it's kind of a like awkward oh, situation. I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It was a little bit of a situation where like we were both really into it, but it was kind of weird. And I was about to leave, and you know, and so I I remember just being like, "Do you want to come over?" I really just kind of 
don't want to be alone, you know? And I'm not like an anti-alone person. I love being alone, but like yeah. this night, it was just like the idea of kind of a cute girl coming over and, and having a little companionship was, was a good thing. And so that's who I spent the night that, that evening with, which is watching TV was this, yeah. per, you know, uh, and, and that gives it an interesting context too, but it was just tons of TV. The thing I remember the most is waking up the next day and just desperately wanting to pretend like it never happened. You know, it's a little bit like the early stages of COVID where every day you woke up and it was like, this can't really be happening. This is madness. That whole fall, a couple of things. Number one, I remember, I remember wanting to go home a lot, you know, and there was, there's something about being back home that was really appealing. And looking back, it's like, it was my last year at school. And so looking back, it's like, I wish I hadn't gone home so much that fall, but at the same time, it's really what felt right. You know, because it was still just a really odd, kind of scary time period. And then the other thing, just for me personally, was that's where I wrote uh, and spent a lot of time writing the the only solo album I ever did, which is this thing called the Phenol Red Solution by Anders Eck. That's the name I went under, and and that's the all those songs are very related to, you know, kind of like dealing with this crazy time. And all of the confusion. And so just from a musical perspective, going through all that, which was a bit traumatic for someone like me who's kind of sensitive, like it led me to write, it led me to write these songs and, and eventually record this album that, uh, that I'm still really proud of because it represents that time, you know? And so I immediately just dove into how can I express what's going on in my head right now? Oh, I can write some songs, which really wasn't my thing because I was a drummer and usually supported people who wrote songs, but and that that's kind of a legacy from it too, for me as well. I always think about that anytime I see or, or re- recall that particular album. How far, how long after nine 11 did, did you uh, release the, uh, the phenol red solution? Was that like, like a year? Yeah. Yeah. It was, well, we started recording it within the year cause I was away. So I, I wrote it all during that fall and then started recording it in the winter and spring of Oh two. And it took a little while cause you know, perfectionist, the whole deal. And then eventually had it ready to go, I think in late 02 or early 03. Nice. Yeah. And if anyone ever wants to check it out, it is available on streaming platforms. And it's, it's so, you, you know, that's one of the best ways I could say is just to recall that time period is just whatever your output is. And for some people, it was poetry and story writing or just free form writing. It just, for me, it just happens to be this collection of songs that, that were just c- completely inspired by and a complete response to this time. And, and that's uh, of course what we're looking at with the rising, the rising did a little bit better than my album and you know, just a little bit, but uh, <laughs> it also has more songs. So yeah, right. many more songs. Yeah. Many more songs. And, and I guess just to bring it back to Springsteen, um, you know, the, as mentioned during the nerdy deets, the rising tour was just a triumphant thing for, for the boss and for anyone who saw it. And I was able to, to go to the show Oh, in nice. 2002 at the palace of Auburn Hills. And I've seen Springsteen before and after, and it was just an incredible, incredible concert. I mean, nice. it, he was, he looked great. He sounded fantastic. The band to your point earlier. So right. The band was so locked in. I mean, they yeah. were just on fire. Yeah. And, uh, it was kind of a, one of those magical experiences. That's great. Seeing him on that tour. Yeah. That's great. I wish I would have seen him on that one. All right. See, well, uh, and it was a interesting trip down memory lane to exchange our 9-11 stories. And you know what? Getting into the track by track is going to be memory lane, certainly for me as well. So uh, 
Let's do it. Let's drop the needle and go track by track on the rising. You know, one signature of the boss is like he never really gets the sequencing quite right on his albums. However, he really opens the rising just flawlessly with the opening track, Lonesome Day. Sort of only took a few seconds to realize a few things. Number one, Brendan O'Brien's going to have a tremendous impact on this album. Yeah. Two, it's going to be a lot heavier. And three, it's going to be a lot earthier. That was kind of the, the I remember my initial response because this album was quite acclaimed. So you put it in your CD player and hit play. And right off the bat, it's just such a dynamic opener, just texturally. You know, there's so many things going on from an instrument perspective, but big, big sound here to open uh, to open the album, isn't it? Hey, was this your album of the year in 2002? Yeah, it was. I thought it was. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it kicks off perfectly. Right. And, uh, you know, in kind of, uh, there's a lot of dichotomy on this record musically, you know, and of course, lyrically, I think in some ways too, of hopefulness, right? This wasn't a downer record. This isn't a make you sad necessarily. It definitely is a record of reflection on what took place. But the the cool thing that I think you get right from the beginning on Lonesome Day is that this is not meant to like sap you out. You know, this is not his Nebraska record in, as far as tone and musicality and those type of things. This is meant to pick people back up off the ground a little bit. And, and I think Lonesome Day captures that perfectly. There's a lot of great instrumentation. And of course, of course, we get the full effect, which we will in the uh, 13 tracks that follow, 14 tracks that follow. From the great Max Weinberg, because he's really <laughs> ripping it on the song. Certainly is. The the emotional roller coaster that you mentioned certainly continues with track two, just a, a clear kind of September 11th uh, influence track, which is the, uh, the incredibly powerful Into the Fire. So on the tour, he would end the uh, the regular set with Into the Fire and kind of do this extended, you know, vocal thing, of course, with that kind of refrain that's going on during uh, during what is obviously a a very passionate chorus. You know, on paper, it's not a song that I would love musically because I tend to not like things that repeat a lot. Repet- repetition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when you know the theme and you understand the tribute that's being paid here and the reflection to your point, I think it means a lot more and it's a, it's a pretty impactful track. That's a great point. And I think there's a lot of that here where, you know, you wouldn't, I mean, neither of us are huge Springsteen guys, right? But you wouldn't commonly, you know, sort of pop this in and just jam along to it unless you're really a Springsteen guy. But when you put it in the context of the time, uh, certainly the lyrical tone, and again, this idea of being respectful, mindful, and sort of remembering what had happened a short time prior to this. Also trying to, you know, dust yourself off a little bit and, and, uh, and establish some sort of, you know, kind of hopefulness through the music. And I think that Into the Fire, another great example, that's a very emotional song, but, but not, you know, one that's going to sap you out. It's one that's going to 
make you want to sort of get up and straighten up and get back after it. And I think that's where people were at into the fire captures that really nicely here. With kind of the new sounds that he's experimenting with on the album, there's three or four times and we'll, we'll get to all of them, of course, where he kind of just reminds you like, I, I'm still Springsteen and I'm still going to sound like Springsteen. And the, the third track is certainly one of those. I think it should have been a huge hit just based on the catchiness of the melody. And it wasn't in America, but it was overseas. And that is uh, the rather infectious waiting on a sunny day. So it is one of the songs that apparently was written before 9-11. This is not a 9-11 song. You can sort of hear that. It was actually played as early as the 90s. And so it, it's got that vintage Springsteen feel. Again, it's not, it's not something that I would listen to a ton, but I am really surprised that this song was not even released as a single in the U.S. It was a hit overseas. It's got such a catchiness to it, just both melodically and in terms of kind of the lyrics. Oh, so he wrote and performed this one long before it was on the rising. Yes. Yeah. This was not written. There's a, there's a a small handful of songs on here that had been in the works for a while. And you kind of tell which ones certainly just kind of purely from a musical standpoint, it doesn't fit in with some of the major themes of the album, but it's obvious that he wanted to explore a lot of different emotions because 9-11 brought on a lot of different emotions. And this just happens to be one of them. It's, it's a little bit more of a cheery sort of sound, but uh, yeah, I think, I, I think it should have been a hit. Well, when you think E street band, you think a song like this musically, right? I mean, yes, you've got the yeah. sax, you've got the, you know, all the sort of keyboard elements and these things. It's, it's, it's um, it is a very, 90s if not late 80s sounding song but in a good way in a in an east street band specific way and i mean max weinberg really really brings it man and i I think brendan o'brien certainly has a lot to do with that he he knew how to produce big drums right but the thing i mean sometimes you know i mean i love conan of course but you know part of the fun for me and watching conan o'brien was those even quick segments where you got to see max drum because i just loved how hard he played and with a lot of feel. I mean, I, I actually think you and uh, him have a lot of similarities in the way that you play. I don't know if, I, if, if I've ever or anyone else has ever said that to you before, but you know, plays hard, but with a lot of feel and pretty nice groove, certainly um, for, for a lot of the E street material. And I'm a huge fan of his drumming. I, and I also thought he was hilarious on the show. Like when they do, the yeah, stare, when they amazing. do the staring contests and stuff, like he's so yeah. great, but um yeah, man, I think I think Max really uh, kicks ass on this record. You're you're not the only one to ever make the comparison. Uh, he's very very tight, almost rigid, to a point as a drummer, right? But he's about as locked in to a groove. He's about as disciplined a drummer as it gets. Yeah, he doesn't overplay. He doesn't underplay. Uh, he he makes great accents at the right moment. Yeah, this great album fills, great simple fills too. You know, yes. he doesn't need to get all like crazy with the fills, and I mean, he's able to just hit stuff that's really percussive and really sort of on beat, um, but still kind of makes those improv, uh, you know, moments his own. And he hits hard too. You know, he hits yeah. the drums the way you're supposed to hit them. Trek four is also not one of the nine 11 era songs on the rising. Although it, this one sounds a lot more like it. It is one. And that is nothing, man. Mm-hmm. 
So not the first Brennan O'Brien produced track called Nothing Man, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. A little Pearl Jam shout out. Yeah. This sounds like Tunnel of Love era. It's kind of nice locked in, very subtle rhythm going on in the background. And yeah. this is where I think Springsteen likes to show off his lyrics and vocals. It's not quite Nebraska. You know, it's not just him and a guitar, but it's got that folky feel that so much of his signature uh, songs and albums have. Yeah. And Tunnel of Love is my favorite Springsteen record. And, you know, the, the way it's sort of combined um, something that's a little bit more stripped down and at times folky in its essence, but then, you know, complemented with a modern sort of beat or some modern layering. And, you know, I think that's kind of what Nothing Man represents. But uh, yeah, I think the Tunnel of Love call is a good one. If it wasn't on this record, it would have been on that one. Eh? It's heavier again with that big Max Weinberg groove with Count on a Miracle. Great dynamics. Good call on the clip, Maestro. I love that breakdown with strings. It's just the E Street Band. It can't be easy to mix both live and in studio. I mean, there's so many things going on and you want to bring out the elements. And I think that's where Brendan O'Brien's production is just so yeah. vital to this because it's a fantastically sounding record, even though there's like 300 people playing on it <laughs> and you can pick out all the bits. You really yeah. can, you know, it's, it's brilliantly produced and, and I got to think nothing against the boss, but yeah, that, that breakdown there with uh, vocals and strings, uh, Probably was Brendan's call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I had to guess, but. Uh, and Springsteen always one to uh, stay pretty humble about himself as an artist and musician. He gives Brendan O'Brien so much credit for this album. I mean, yeah. even the liner notes, he kind of leads with, hey, you know, thank you for everything you brought to this because you kind of made it what it is. Yeah. And uh, that says a lot. Track six, uh, you know, again, you think about lyrically um, how. Bruce was, oh, I just did the first name thing. That's so annoying when Springsteen fans call him by his first name. Oh, you can do it. Come Sorry on, about man. that. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Bruce, you know. Yeah. The lyrical inspiration becomes, you know, really clear and, and really deep, I think, with uh, track six, which is Empty Sky. vivid imagery i think musically it's it's very beatle-ish it almost sounds white album-ish especially that piano that kind of thunders in mm -hmm. real steady backbeat but obviously this is you know th this song must have meant a lot to new yorkers um probably in a variety of different emotional ways but i mean he's really painting a pretty vivid picture of uh, of the scene of what it would be like to wake up the next day and have literally an empty sky where these mammoth structures once sat, you know, not too long ago. So yeah, it captures it well, you know, and again, again, it's not the thing I like about this. It's not sappy and intentionally melodramatic. You know, it's a song with some 
little bounce to it, but you know, obviously lyrically, you know, exploring something that, uh, like you said, pretty vivid. So again, just a lot of balance on this record of, of capturing the moods, uh, and the lyrical tones, uh, perfectly without being over the top, you know, track seven worlds apart proves the theory that we've talked about in previous episodes, which is that in the nineties and early two thousands, everybody, including the boss had to experiment with middle Eastern sounds. (laughs) Everyone just had to do it. At least once, worlds apart. What do you think? You think it works? Yeah, I actually do. I actually do. Um, and you know that guitar kind of comes in right there and adds a nice punch to it and and Max is just again he's just supplying sort of a perfect you know really driving big beat behind it so it's not doesn't sound gimmicky to me it sounds cool you know and it sounds like something where um and you know O'Brien probably deserves credit here of of kind of being constructed and produced perfectly so that it didn't Sound like, to your point, just another 90s attempt at uh, Middle Eastern sounds, but it sounded, you know, pretty authentic and and actually a cool rock song with some of those elements tied in. So, yeah, man, I think it works. How about you? You think it works? Yeah, I think for all those reasons, I agree. Yeah, it, it's it's done in a more subtle way. And in terms of the mix, it's there, but it still feels like a rock song. Kind of the openness, there's space in the song, and you know, you you know my love of space and all things music. So yeah, it 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 feels a little cliched at first, but then when it presses on, you kind of feel, you know, kind of the focus of of the melody of the song more than just trying to follow the trend of you know, hey, let's incorporate some uh, different types of rhythms and melodies here. So yeah, I, I think it works for sure, for sure. T, we're about halfway through. <laughs> It's a long album, man. A lot of tracks, yeah. A lot of tracks. For sure. It's the CD era, indeed. Track eight is Let's Be Friends Skin to Skin. It's the only throwaway track on the album for me. It, it It's... It's sort of dreadfully plain. And why, why skin to skin? Where that? Where does that come from? You know, <laughs> I don't know. You're kind of going know. through the track listing, and you know, and all that. It's like let's be. Well, and plus, it's called let's be friends. I mean, uh, I don't know, skin to skin with your, with yeah, your, with your friends. I don't, I don't know. That just. Uh, <laughs> I guess I need to read the lyrics and be. Yeah, like, it could be like a deeper hell is this meeting, all about? It's, yeah. it's a yeah, it's a little. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm being a prevert. Maybe it's not implying right you know literal skin to skin but i don't know it's a strange title yeah I've, i would never accuse you of such things no. you, you have a very clean mind yes, yes. um yeah i i think the song doesn't uh there's no adventure to it at all you saw some of these there's other spots in one that's incredibly successful where he started experimenting with like sort of a hip-hop deal remember streets of philadelphia you know, when Streets yeah. of Philadelphia came out, it was stunning in the sense that it was like so yeah. minimal and All, awesome, awesome song. Yeah, I know you love that one. I mean, it, it it's kind of like a hip hop beat, really. And 
Does that mean you don't like it? You say, I know you love that one. Does that mean you're meh? You know, I, as a kid, I hated it, but I know why, because there was a lot of imagery and in, in the elements of the movie, which I saw way too young. It was just very, it's a little overwhelming. Hindsight has shown me what a kind of brilliant song that was. Great song. And, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think you do have to separate with what you do in a lot of ways. You have to kind of separate the uh, videos or the movies that it was tied to or those type of things. But when you just see the song as just a, a standalone piece. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing to your point. That was it pretty in, innovative at the time. Not something you'd expect from, from the boss. Correct. It's one of the reasons he's still so relevant is because he was willing to take these, these risks and these chances all throughout his career. Although he should have called it streets of Philadelphia skin to skin <laughs> would have been a better, better song title, you know, just let's leave skin to skin. You know, it's just, it's, it's not even hard to say it. Yeah, it's just kind of weird. It. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Track nine, further on up the road. Now, this is a, a parenthesis that makes a little bit more sense. Further on up the road. Now, that one I get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Better than yeah. skin to skin. Further on skin to skin would have just been random. Just. <laughs> Bruce kind of goes metal here. I mean, it's a big, big, big song. It, it's, uh, there's so many guitarists in the East Street Band. You know, you got Nils Lofgren, you got Bruce, you got Silvio, uh, you got Patty sometimes on acoustic guitar. Like, there's a ton of guitars going on. So it's impossible to figure out what's Well, and what. you got Christopher Maltasanti on the tambourine. Think, <laughs> right, right? Yeah, possible. right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but the guitar tone shines through on this song to me. Yeah, I think, you know, again, there's a lot of tracks on the rising that give you that driving sort of thing. And uh, and again, it just gives you that feeling of, uh, I think, at least musically, you know, it's like get, trying to get people back, you know, getting their getting their chins up, you know. And uh, and uh, I think I think those type of songs that that are sprinkled throughout this record uh, that kind of give you that as as further on up the road does are, are nice. That spectrum of feelings is so present in the final six tracks. I almost think that the back end of the album is, is the most interesting. And in some cases, just the best. When you look at a couple of the songs, one of them being track 10, which far and away was one of the best songs of the night on the rising tour. And that's why he played it every show, which is the fuse. Easily cracks my top five Springsteen songs. And when they played this live, it was a moment, you know, he mm -hmm. was singing it with so much uh, fire and you can tell he really likes this song. You could kind of tell Brendan O'Brien really likes it because there's a lot of programming oh, yeah. in the song that really works. And again, sort of that hip hop beat, but at this time it's just got oodles of atmosphere over the top of it. I, I, I just, I think it's just like one of the smartest songs he's ever done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, it's a high point, you know, and I don't know if it's the high point because I don't know, the title track's kind of tough to beat, but uh, not to, not to, you know, spoiler, 
or anything. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the fuse is a high point here. And, and again, everything's coming together. Production, um, big, strong. There's a lot of strength on the record musically, right? Like it's a strong album. And I think that again, um, perfect producer for that. And really, uh, I think exemplified that properly. And, uh, the fuse is just that, you know, it's a song with a lot of muscle, but also a lot of thoughtfulness, great sections. And, uh, I think it's a, it's a real top track on the record. Very, very well said T the, uh, the next track is, is absolutely not one of the nine 11 songs. But I will tell you, in, in, when I first listened to the album and really got into it, I was, I was sort of finding its place. You know, I was searching for a concept through the album, even though it's not a concept album. But there was something about the way it's placed and just the sheer party aspect of it that I thought was captivating and actually fit in well in sort of a weird way. And live at the show, this was a huge, you know, moment in the show because it was kind of his break it down and and uh, talk sort of moment, which, you know, he loves to do. And, and it's, you know, you look into it and, and it actually was written long before the rising came out and uh, it's very influenced uh, by a incredibly famous singer from our past. So uh, let's get into Mary's place. So it's, it's a direct influence, basically. I mean, it's from Sam Cooke's Meet Me at Mary's Place. And uh, yeah, it found a strange place for me on the record. At first I was confused, but then I was like, you know, finding a, a spot in the narrative that actually doesn't exist <laughs> at 22 as, as, I, as I really hoped this was a concept album, even though it's not. <laughs> but um, it, it's super E Street. Right. I mean, it sounds like something off the first E Street Band album in its sort of rollicking and celebration. But uh, what, do I, what do you think of Mary's Place? I've always found it. It's, it's kind of a weird deal because I'm the deal here because, you know, you you I don't really like this song that much, but for some reason it's really memorable. You know, and I think to your point, the back half of the record kind of has. Uh, a progression to it that you remember. Like when I listened to this again, it had been years since I had really gone top to bottom. And it was like, I just remembered so much of the back half. And and it wasn't like, oh, I love this song. It was just like, oh yeah. Like I remember that. I remember hearing that. And that being integrated into this whole idea of, of the rising and certainly the back half as it sort of takes you home, takes you through the title track and sort of the, the very, again, memorable way that it closes. So yeah, it's interesting sometimes with records, you have songs that you don't really like, but you are sort of pleased to hear again. And for some reason, Mary's Place has always been that. Setting up track 13, which is, again, this back half, it's just, it's all over the map. It's got so many things going on and is so memorable. And that is You're Missing. Everything, everything, but you're missing. you know, does not take a rocket scientist to figure out the theme of the song along with empty sky. It's probably just the most 
visually obvious, you know, what, what is being covered here. And the whole idea of being missing was a huge theme for the entire country after 9-11. Because remember, for the days ensuing, that was the terminology that was used, was somebody was missing. And um, so it, it hits, you know, home, I'm sure, for a lot of people that this song really just kind of covers that idea and that journey that many went on as they, um, you know, tried to uncover what was happening with loved ones as, as they were quote unquote missing. Yeah. It's, I mean, there, there had to be a couple of literal moments here and empty sky and this are probably the, the strongest, you know? So while not a concept album, I think it was important to have a couple of things that, um, were too important to to metaphor your way through and uh and I think that it's an important piece of the record and gets you to a place that's a little bit more melancholy but still in a very sort of genuine way. Can we just skip track 13 it's not that important. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a throwaway. Yeah. I do want to know, you know, your thoughts on the sequence here because something big is happening with the placement of this song. It's it's the third last on the album. And there must be something to take from that because it's such an obvious pinnacle of not just this album, but Springsteen's entire songwriting career. I think it's, I think it's because of the track before it. I think, I think this is almost a package deal where the track before it sets up the, the sort of, you know, the track before it's the saddest track on the album. And then you get into the rising, which is the most hopeful. And I think that was intentional. But hey, you know, what the hell do I know? We haven't even played it yet. I like the theory. All right. (laughs) Let's do it. The Rising. I just want you to keep playing it. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? How do you choose a section in that song too? Because you know, there's so many. It, it's just such an incredibly constructed song. But lyrically, you know, it, it's telling the story of presumably a first responder or fireman or somebody like that, like actually, you know, going into the buildings. It, it goes through this entire kind of detailed you know, very relatable um, themes in terms of this individual who through this horrific experience finds a tremendous amount of hope and inspiration. So it's like the, it's like the themes of the whole album squeezed into one song. They opened with this on the uh, tour, kind of a draggy, but very powerful version that i don't really understand i I don't know why it's you know boss is kind of always weird about how to construct set lists and shows but i would think that that would be something you'd want to put in the middle or toward the end but he's better at this than i am clearly (laughs) i like how the first verse is really you know kind of somber and low and then you got that build and then the next verse is one thing and then by the by the third verse, you know, it's really open and really grand. Yeah. I don't even think there are choruses. It's, it's a unique song structure. It's, it's non-traditional, you know, cause it's almost like there are verses and bridges kind of working uh, together and, and breakdowns rather than there being like a hook chorus type thing. I guess you could say it's the, 
you know, la la la's, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I consider that a course for, for debate. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, it's a, you're probably right. Yeah. But it's a very thoughtfully constructed song. Right. And, uh, I love the placement. You know, I love that it's not last, um, because there is still a mood to be had after. I do think that you're taking the 12 tracks that precede it and putting it into a blender and then making it taste really good. And out comes the rising, you know, it, it's, a uh, it's a wonderful track. It's, it's a, you know, I think it's one of the most important songs of the uh, millennium as it is. And it did give people a lot of, you know, feeling uh, during this time. And, it, you know, it took a couple of years for people to kind of, in many ways, kind of regain their, uh, their mojo and their muscle, you know, and songs like this helped. And so I think it's a really important one. I think it's pretty timeless in that way. Every time it comes on, I think of September 11th and I think of the time period, you know, and very few songs are able to 20 years later, like literally actually take you back to that place in your, uh, in your mind and in your spirit and the rising does, you know, and that's part of what makes it pretty awesome. What one part of the song that I think deserves more attention than it gets it's one of the great sort of 10 second guitar solos, I think ever. And you know, who's playing it for Springsteen and he oh. would play that live, but I'm talking, it just continues to lift the song. And for, you know, he didn't have a lot of guitar solos in his music. Yeah. And the fact that he's playing it, I think Bernard O'Brien maybe wrote it, but he's playing it and it just continues to bring the song to this, you know, this sort of climax that you get to. And uh, it's just really effective. It's, I agree with you. I think it's one of the most important songs of, of the millennia and one that I hope people continue to discover, you know? I think you actually said it correctly. Is it millennia? I was, I was supposed to say. Yeah, it's millennia. No. Singular. Yeah. Right. That's nice okay. Nice <laughs> all right, man. That's all right. <laughs> all right. The Rising uh, wraps up with back-to-back songs to close and the first one is paradise and I break above the waves. I feel the sun upon my face tons of atmosphere some kind of synthesizer work going on there a different song, but one that fits in well on the album. And again, you know, sequence wise, should it be where it is? I don't know. But uh, this album wasn't going to get through without something that was kind of like this, you know, really, really serious and really focused on uh, on his lyrics. Yeah, pretty, pretty mystical. I mean, you know, and again, the the rising is pretty majestic. So I think bringing it down and reminding everybody, you know, that they're still you know, something here that we're talking about that, uh, uh, sort of quiet and reserved and thoughtful, you know? so I think it comes off. I think that, that you're missing the rising paradise trifecta is an interesting part where it really covers all the moods of the album really in three different songs. The album closes with, with a song that might seem so obvious by the title that it's a nine 11 song. It actually is not. And the city that he's singing about originally was not New York city. It was somewhere else. And we'll get into it as we look at the closing track, My City of Ruins. Come on, rise up. Come on, rise up. Come on, rise up. 
The song was actually first performed about a year before 9-11. It's about Asbury Park. And it was first performed with a direct tribute to Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is where obviously Bruce and some of the members of the East Street Band are from. And Asbury Park is, you know, a city that's been through a lot uh, in history. And he was referring to kind of the revitalization of his hometown. And now, obviously, after 9-11, the song took on a little bit of an increased meaning. And so he included that on the rising and he played it live at the tribute show that they did like that tribute show that like was basically like a, it was like a telethon. I mean, yeah, that that was uh, where there were a lot of firefighters and police uh, responders and those things in the audience, uh, the concert for, for in central Parker, New York city or something. Yeah. Yeah. That was neat. I remember that. For sure. And that, and that was really close to 9-11. I think it was within a month of it. And so they quickly kind of put together this uh, fundraising event and, and he performed My City of Ruins. So, you know, there's a, there's a common thing. Oh, it was a 9-11 song. Well, it became one, but certainly was not one originally. But it, it, it's a song that you can tell means a lot to Springsteen, I, I think now, especially that, that it took on some dual meaning, but originally it was about his hometown, which I think gives it, you know, uh, even, even more heartfelt kind of credibility, if you will. Sounds like you've got some quarantine animals in the background. There, huh? <laughs> yes. This is what, this is what quarantine sounds like. Guys. Really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I've got a, a house of ruins right now. I should, I should write a song called my house of ruins. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, T, that's uh, that wraps up the rising. All fifteen tracks of it, boy, is that a that's kind of a lost thing at this point? Is an yeah. album this long? Yeah, yeah. Covers such a range, both musically, lyrically, and emotionally. But uh, let's just talk about T. Does it matter? You know, this whole kind of edition of Two Twins in an Album has been looking at not just an album, but a time in history, and so. What do you think, man? I mean, we're almost 20 years out from this record. Does it matter? I think it does. And it's not because of the songs, you know, I mean, it's not like the greatest album ever made and it's not, you know, the songs aren't going to blow you away. A couple of them are really stand out. Um, but collectively as a whole, you know, if you want to, you know, when you're, I mentioned earlier that, you know, you're, uh, eldest rug rat over there that we can probably hear in the background asked about 9-11 while we were on vacation recently. And I think that this is, if you want to show musically, um, just a way to kind of help explain, even though it's not a concept album and it's not literal on the topic, top to bottom, it really did capture the time period and the resolve, uh, at least musically better than anything else. I think it is going to be an important way to kind of uh, go back and revisit that sort of vibe and that very awful, but also very unifying and, and, um, and hopeful time period as we were sort of starting to come out of that. And I think the rising is a soundtrack for that. So, you know, do I love every song? No. You know, is it a must in terms of breaking down the musicality or the, uh, you know, sort of complexity of why it mattered in the grand scheme of kind of uh, the, the entire music industry or or pop culture, or any of those things. I mean, I wouldn't say so, but there's probably no better soundtrack 
if you want to um, help somebody understand what the tone of things was like around that time and a very genuine artistic statement that paid proper and appropriate, I think, homage and tone to the event and to where things were at at that time, the rising's probably the ultimate choice. So therefore, I, I do think there's an element of this that matters. What would you say, Nub? Does it matter, buddy? I'm going to Xerox everything you just said in terms of the reasons why it matters for all the non-song traits and just agree with everything that you said. However, I also think it matters because, and T, correct me if I'm wrong, but how can this not be seen as one of Bruce Springsteen's greatest works? And yeah, cue like the river people coming over the river. Yeah. Or cue the darkness on the edge of town people, you know, or cue the born in the USA people. I get it. Like, and I'm not a Springsteen expert by any means, but like you listen to this top to bottom. How could this not be seen as a top three album in his catalog or certainly top five? The dude has made some clunkers. He's made some junk. He's made some things that weren't relevant. The Rising is thoughtful. It's relevant. It's incredibly well-produced. It sounds great. And I would say the songs do make it matter. You're talking about seven or eight things on here that are amongst the best works that he's ever done. And it's a big catalog. So take away all the historical ramifications and its role as a period piece. Still think it's one of the best Springsteen albums and therefore deserves some attention for people who want to kind of discover what his world was all about. T, let's do the final cut. Is The Rising on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the for sale bin? T, where you got The Rising? Too important of its time period to put in the for sale bin. And I think, again, top to bottom, it's, you know, it's quite good. It's not every song is, a, is, is wonderful, but I'm going to put it in the collection because I do think it's something that is worth revisiting. And even if it's every few years, you know, of something that you want to sort of revisit that time or revisit why this album did give people uh, some hope and something to sort of lean on with a, an artist that they were very familiar with that portrayed sort of toughness and blue collar, you know, pull up your bootstraps and let's go kind of an idea. I think that was so important of its time that it really is a, a relic of sorts, uh, of a way to kind of revisit it, at least in an audible soundtrack sense. So for that, I'm going to put it in the collection. I, I do think it's one that uh, should be owned and one that, again, if you're looking to explain this to somebody uh, beyond films and beyond YouTube clips and beyond words, but just through music, there probably isn't a better choice. And for that, I think it deserves to be in Z collection. Where you got it, Nub? I've got it in the collection as well. I think that uh, it's really long and top to bottom. There, there are some moments that make it feel a little indulgent. There was a lot to say, and I respect that. And that makes the album really important. And it's, it's so important that I think it's in the collection. I think that, and again, the early 2000s, man, weird time in music. You're sort of coming out of boy bands. You're going into the, the digital world. and you know, Springsteen at this point in his career was, was an older guy. And so I think it captures the era about as good as anything else could do. And you captured that well in your, uh, in your, does it matter? So I got it firmly in the collection. I think it's one of the best albums of its time and one of the most important albums of its time. And so people should buy and own it and listen to it when they have three hours. <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty long. I mean, there are probably three or four tracks that 
could have maybe been on the uh, the next, you know, Springsteen record. But uh, I love the song titles too. I don't know for some reason I was like looking through the song titles. They yeah. they take you back to the time. Not every one was written about nine eleven, but they take you back to that time and what the album was trying to do. So it's a unique one for me in that way too. That sometimes I just like. Can't it's a great call on the song titles. It, it's it's one of the more signature top to bottom, just list of titles that you can get. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a good observation. I don't really know why, but it just is, you know, some records are like that. Just they're funny like that. Yeah. I, I think it speaks to its place in history. I do. I, I think, I think that has a lot to do with yeah, just the overall theme of it. Well, Hey, let's look at some more song titles as we wrap things up here. And, uh, let's hear what, yeah. Loris, <laughs> let's hear what's in your head, in your head, in your head. What is in your head? She's on fire today, huh? Absolutely. She's feeling it. Yes. Yes. In my head, you know, I had a little uh, fun weekend with uh, some neighbors, you know, just having some cocktails and watching some some of the pig skin, you know. Cocktails and dreams. (laughs) Cocktails and dreams. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'll throw you out a couple of the songs that came up that we were pleased to hear. The first is uh, by the band Alabama. You know, guys with great beards and mustaches and play some good old fashioned 80s country music before it became hip hop country and that sort of thing. And this is a mountain music. Just a, just a, <laughs> That's a great jam. Great track, right? <laughs> uh, the second is uh, another country tune, and that is by Brooks and Dunn. A couple of my favorite dudes. And that is uh, Ain't Nothing About You. That don't do something for me. You know, so kind of digging into the country a little bit. And then, you know, once we had played enough country, we did uh, Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew doing uh, Lottie Dottie. So there you go. That's kind of how we do it in the neighborhood. Sounds like we have a new disciple of hip hop country on our hands. I, you know, I got to say, I I think I said this before, but I, I finally heard what you're talking about. And it's just so bad. It's oh, really, it's really despicable, bad. You know? unspeakably <laughs> terrible. And we've always differed a little bit on country, you know, but, but I mean, I like the old stuff more. I, some of the new ish stuff is okay, but, but man, that like really new modern recent form of hip hop country is just freaking awful. You know, so it's you were so right bad. about that one. Yeah. It's so bad. I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. What's in your head, buddy? Probably not some hip hop country. I would imagine. No, no, no. But there is a little, I don't want to be, I don't want to be me. Yeah. I don't want to be. Me Yeah. Nice. I don't want to be me by typo negative. God, I love that song. I love that song. I didn't love it when I first started on the record, but it's such a great typo, like up tempo song. Life is killing me is awesome. Yeah. So, it's yeah. so good. It's awesome. It's a monster. Next would be uh the studio version of a little song called Chili Water by Widespread Panic. Again, we're getting near the end of the summer, so trying to get my jam bandness out. So Cool, cool water for widespread. And last would be a pretty obscure track. Gavin Rossdale did a, uh, he did a band before reuniting Bush called Institute. And the lead single from their only album was called Come On Over. And it's a real jam. It's, it's sort of sounds like Bush, but a little heavier. So Come On Over by Institute. To check that out. T really appreciates uh, this episode. And, And as we mentioned at the top, we're lucky to be able to sit around and analyze albums and be brothers and 
enjoy music and all the things that we take for granted because there were people on September 11, 2001 that lost the ability to do all these things that we enjoy. And may we never, ever forget that and forget them. And may we always appreciate the fact that, you know, others gave so that we can have, and, um, you know, let's do everything we can as a little podcaster to make sure that we keep them in our hearts and minds. And that's kind of what this episode was all about. Wasn't it? I agree, man. Such, such a thoughtful, great choice by you. Well done. And, uh, never, ever forget, never, ever forget. That was a, um, you know, you never want to dwell on negative things or, you know, relive awful moments, but that's one of those things that you, uh, need to at the appropriate times, you know, offer the right respect and homage toward. And uh, like you said here on episode, what the hell episode are we in? 61? 61, I think. I guess it is 61. Yeah. Yeah. And we, if not, we'll just say it is for now. That's right. Yeah. Then <laughs> pick a pick a number, you know. But uh but yeah, uh, doing that in our own little way was great and really thoughtful, nice choice by you, buddy. So appreciate it. And now more than ever, we certainly ask everybody to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode 62 here on Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and an Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.